Welcome everybody to another edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah talk in Dutchess County. I am Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Schachter School of Long Island, and with me today is Hope Lubav, who will be joining the faculty of the Beit Rabban School in Manhattan, and Rabbi Rob Scheinberg of the United Synagogue of Hoboken. We're beginning the second session of camp this week, so it's appropriate to shout out to my good buddies, Rabbis Elliot Malamud and Jeremy Kamenowski, who may be making an appearance later this summer. The Parsha we have this morning is Parshat Vayat Hanan, the second of the Parshiot and Sefer Devarim, and it is chock full of texts that we know in other contexts. Um, the loose translation of the French term would be an embarrassment of riches. We have the Shema, the Ten Commandments, verses that make it into the liturgy. So why don't we begin with the Ten Commandments, perhaps one of the most famous texts in the Bible. Here in the second telling of the Ten Commandments, Moses is relating what happened 40 years before. And there's a curious introduction to the text. Moses is speaking to the people assembled as if they were the ones at Mount Sinai. But this is a generation that is about to enter the land. So the only two people who are over who were at Mount Sinai, who were over 40, or who were over 20 at Mount Sinai, are Joshua and Caleb and Moshe himself, who, as we know, is about to depart from the scene. And yet we find this curious verse, Panim b'fanim diber Aronai imachem b'har mitoch ha'esh, anochi omeid b'in Aronai u'beinechem b'irachi l'hagid l'chem et devar Aronai. And then the verse goes on. So, Moses is telling the people that God spoke to them face to face. Many of the people weren't even there. And then, Rob, you wanted to share a comment on this phrase, Anochi Omeid Bein Aronai Uveinechem. Actually, I was going to comment on a different phrase. Go ahead. It's uh, freewheeling, it's radio. Fantastic. Everything is uh, preserved for eternity. Right. When I think about the Ten Commandments as presented here in Vayet Hanan, of course, the Ten Commandments were presented earlier in the book of Exodus in Parashat Yitro. It's mostly the same, but there are a few major differences and many major differences in the commandments about Shabbat. I just find it to be interesting that the rationale that's given for the holiday of Sh- for Shabbat in Exodus is... Uh, God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. But here we have a completely different rationale. Uh, 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 the link to the is, Exodus. Right, which is that we used to be uh, slaves in Egypt. And so it seems like there's two different motivations for celebrating Shabbat. Shabbat's a day of, of, of imitating God and resting like God rested. And Shabbat is also a day of making sure that we don't become slaves and that we also don't become slave masters. And so we also have responsibilities to each other and to ourselves to so observe Shabbat. The question that comes up then, why in Exodus... At that very moment, does God remind the people that Shabbat is linked to creation, whereas for the generation specifically that's going to conquer and inherit the land, that they're commanded to remember that they were once slaves? What does that tell us about the society that Devarim envisions for us in the land of Israel? You know, I think one possibility is like you can't, you, you only really understand something in your. Uh, in your personal history or your family history after a little bit of time has elapsed. And I'm not so sure that the generation that just left slavery even really understood what slavery was until they had some experience of freedom. That could be one reason. 
this is also a generation that was raised by people who had been slaves. So their, um, their experience, and you can tie it even into, and I know my father would want me to tie it into the Kabbalat Avicha, that the Vatimecha, and that in, in order to honor the memory of their parents, they need to remember the experience of their parents in terms of how they're connecting to things. So the suggestion then is perhaps Exodus is universal, but our history is a personal history that's not only our own, but that which we inherited from our parents as well. It is curious that Moses addresses the people as if they were actually at Mount Sinai. What do you make of that? We have an eternal covenant because our ancestors accepted the covenant with God at Mount Sinai. I was discussing with some of my Chanyachim, one of the Mayami Lim words, I'm sure, in uh, Sololim about this eternal covenant, which they some of them had a problem with, that they didn't have a choice. They want to be able to choose whether they want to be part of the covenant or not. Devarim suggests that you don't have that choice, that once the covenant is accepted, you have to take it. Not just take it, but but really identify with it. We talked about this in uh, one of my classes also this week. Um, one of your ketot, I'm one sure. One of my ketot, exactly. Um, when uh, a chanich actually brought up um, the quote, <coughs> excuse me, from uh, from the Haggadah, "Bechol dorador chayav adam lirot etatzmo keiluhu yatzami mitzrayim," and really linking it to um, to this idea of that is part of our history. It's part of our, our ancient family, um, uh, the memory of our, of our people, and it's something that, um, that we're required to do, chayav. Um, I think there's a lots of decisions that our parents or our society make for us, and uh, uh, it seems like this is uh, like this is one of them. We don't necessarily get to choose where we're born, what country we're citizens of, for better or worse. Um, there's a limited amount of, of opportunity we might have to change some of those things, um, but um, uh, it seems like. Uh, Jewish tradition is one of many things that is uh, part of our lives even before we arrive in the world. And so the idea that these people who didn't actually stand at Sinai are considered to have stand, stood at Sinai it is an idea that makes sense to me. So this theme is picked up in one of the commandments. The verse says that God is an Elkanah, a jealous or a zealous God. That God is one who remembers a person's sin to the third and fourth generation, and yet is compassionate for the good deeds that one does for the thousandth generation. So, what do we make of that? I once did the math. We assume a generation is 25 years. A thousand generations is 25,000 years. That's longer than Jews have been counting history. Do we see God today as a compassionate God? <laughs> well, th that kind of ties into uh, some other discussions uh, that I had with uh, Solalim uh, this, this week about this week's theme at camp, Dan Chavzut, and 
giving uh, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, one would hope that um, that uh, that God would be generous mm-hmm. in that way, though I guess all-knowing um, wouldn't have to give the benefit of the doubt because would know all that happened. Um, but setting an example for the people to um, to uh, to be to be kind and to be generous in that way. Well, I would describe myself as a, a, a theological naturalist. So I would say, is God compassionate? Uh, if we are, then God is. And that the way that God is compassionate is by activating compassion within us, including teaching lessons about compassion from the Torah. So actually, um, God ought to be compassionate, but whether God's compassion gets exercised in the world is really up to us. So this idea of reciprocity is perhaps at the heart of the Shema. The Shema being the other famous passage, one that we recite twice a day that we find in the Parsha. What we find here is the first paragraph of the Shema, but most of us, I think, ourselves, or certainly our students, often break it into two. The six words of the Shema itself, and the Ve'ahavta, as if the Ve'ahavta is somehow separate, because in our liturgy we we have include a line that's not from the Torah that separate the two. So if we could speak for a moment or two about how we see this idea of God being one, the Adonai Achad, the uniqueness of God. What does that have to say to us today? The word echad can be understood in so many different ways. And, and actually, I think that it might mean something different in the Siddur and in the book of Devarim. Um, I think that in the, uh, in the, the JPS translation here says, uh, uh, says Adonai alone. Adonai is our God, Adonai alone. Or in other words, there's no other God that the Jewish people are permitted to worship. By the time the rabbis look at this verse, though, they understand echad as meaning there is only one God. And then by the time the mystics get to it, they say, actually, Adonai echad really means the entire universe is one. And the entire universe and God have some uh, 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 relationship together. There are different ways of describing the same, uh, the, the same thing. And so it becomes not only uh, uh, an affirmation of the oneness of God, but also of the oneness of all of the universe. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think uh, for me, what's particularly interesting about, <clears throat> about the Shema here is the commandment that, that follows immediately, or the command that follows to love God. Because um, in, in the 21st century, I think we don't necessarily think of love as something that, be, that can be commanded. Um, but this idea to, to love God and then to love God three ways, with, your, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, what does that mean? All these different ways, these different ways to enter into that oneness, uh, into that um, respect for and awe for that, that oneness, but through a place of love, um, even if, I guess it's like fake it till you make it, right? Love, um, go in with a, with a feeling of love. Maybe it's not um, sincere at the beginning, but learn to do it by entering through these three different ways um, and practicing that. So the rabbis derive from the paragraph, the mitzvah of tefillin and mezuzah, perhaps as a way to get the, the faint of heart to actualize or concretize 
their love for God. What's striking to me is that in this parsha we not only see the command to love God, but an expression of God's love for us. So that speaks to, Rob, what you had talked about, the reciprocity, that we're in a mutual relationship with God where our love of God is actually a response to God's love for us. I'm not sure how many of us see ourselves today as being loved by God, but perhaps that is something we could think about as we think about our time here at camp. Are there ways that we can increase our love for God and God's love for us in this camp setting? One of the things, actually, Hope, that, that you said that reminded me of and also uh, that, that, that you've just mentioned, um, uh, that, that sometimes this doesn't all happen at one time. And my favorite comment on the Ve'ahavta section of the Shema uh, uh, also relates to this idea. I think it's very relevant to the camp setting, which is the Kotzka Rebbe's uh, explanation of, Let these words that I command you this day be upon your heart. So why does it say, upon your heart, and not not within your heart? And uh, his answer is, of course the ideal is to have the words of the Torah be in your heart. It doesn't always happen, though. Sometimes your heart is closed, and so what you have to do is just pile the words of the Torah on top of your heart, and then eventually your heart will open and the words will just fall in. So one of the things I really like about uh, in being involved with teaching Torah at camp is we know that we are, uh, that some of the things people learn at camp, they're not really penetrating the heart until a later point in uh, in the life of a chanich or even of a, of a uh, madrich, uh, but that uh, some of the teachings of the Torah are just put in contact with the heart, so when the heart will open to them, then uh, then those those teachings will fully enter the heart. I know there are things that I learned when I was a chanich at a, a different camp Ramah uh, that will not be mentioned. <laughs> that there were things that I remember hearing and didn't really understand them until I became an adult. So you mentioned the Kutzka Rebbe, long one of my favorites. I thought you were going to mention another comment on the Pasuk, Anochi Yechem, I stand between you and God, which in the context refers to Moshe, who is an intermediary between man and God. God is presented here as somewhat fearful. Um, the people shy away from God. But the Kutzker says that what stands between us and God is anochi, our ego, that the obstacle that prevents us from reaching God is ourselves. And too often, perhaps, we look out and blame other things when we have to look in. And I was reminded of another famous Hasidic comment that speaks to your point, Rob, that God God is wherever we let him in, that there are barriers, that sometimes it seems that God's on the heart, but if we open our heart, God can get in the heart as well. And again, it puts the onus on us, on the individual. That seems to speak well to us as Americans living in the 21st century, inheriting a rich political history and ideology, um, perhaps somewhat uh, injured, in our day today, but I think that the dream at least still remains. We have some time left. If we could just turn to a moment to the Haftarah. This is the first week of consolation. We observe Tisha B'Av on Sunday, and now we find ourselves emerging from that week with the words of Isaiah chapter 40, which according to many scholars is 
known as second Isaiah, coming from a couple hundred years after the first Isaiah, um, who lived around the time of, who lived in the eighth century. Our second Isaiah now is comforting the people after the destruction of the temple and in the period before the return to the land of Israel. And so the opening words are quite majestic, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, the people should be comforted. This passage forms part of a, a liturgical text that's often used in, um, at funerals. Kol Omer Ani Omer Ma'ekra, a voice sounds, what shall I say? Speak, and I say, what shall I say? And Isaiah makes reference to the Ruach Adonai that blows across the earth as well as the Devar Eloheinu, the word of our God. So what's curious is the people are compared to grass which withers, the, the wind blows on it, the grass withers, and yet the word of Adonai lasts forever. And I was struck in thinking about this that the wind of God suggests an impersonal God, a God that we're not related to. The wind blows whether we're here or not. But for the word of God to be eternal, it requires a listener and a responder, someone who can take God's message and externalize it. And perhaps we can mix a few metaphors and suggest that the Jews, in a sense, are the first responders. In our myth, Abraham is the first monotheist because he responded first to the call of God. But again, we're here at camp, we're entering our second session. Um, how, what do we make of words of comfort at a time like this? Tisha B'Av is always difficult at camp because kids are here to have a great time. We have three weeks of semi-morning, we have the nine days, and then we culminate with Tisha B'Av. And it doesn't quite match the camp agenda. It seems that we would be better to be in the Southern Hemisphere when we could have Hanukkah in the summer instead of Tisha B'Av, but now we have to find some consolation. So as we look at this Haftarah, as we look ahead to what we hope will be an exciting second session of camp, what message can we find? You know, I do have a comment about Tisha B'Av. Uh, so some of the other Yahadu teachers uh, sometimes make fun of me for uh, saying that uh, Tisha B'Av is my favorite holiday, which it is not. But I do want to say <laughs> Thank you for one thing, it, is, it really is not, even though I do in the academic side of my life. I, I love studying about uh, PU team and liturgical poetry, of which there's a lot of it for Tisha B'Av. But I will tell you what I do love about Tisha B'Av at camp, um, which is uh, Tisha B'Av is... Uh, day that um, is hard for us to relate to, and that makes us different from most Jews throughout history. Most Jews throughout history did not have trouble really relating to the essential message of Tisha B'Av, which is that we used to be free and we used to be independent in our own land, and then we became slaves and we became oppressed and we became scattered around the world, and our existence is very precarious. And Tisha B'Av is a story that tells how we got that way. But that's not the Jewish story now. Pesach really is like the holiday that best sums up the condition of the Jewish people. Now we, we used to be slaves and now we're free. And we have a passage from the Haggadah in our Parsha this week, so it's good that you mentioned it. That's right, yes. Uh, we will read the, the question of the Chacham. Uh, uh, what are the, the uh, laws and the statutes that you have 
uh, ordained uh, uh, that, uh, that God has commanded you? And then the answer, Avadim Hayinu, the Pharaoh of Mitzrayim, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. I was going to say one thing, but what you said <clears throat> brought me back to the start of this conversation in terms of, I think, Barry, one of your first questions in terms of why is Moshe saying what he's saying in the way he is to the people, speaking to them as if they were at Sinai when they weren't, um, talking about slavery when they were not slaves, um, <clears throat> and this idea that Yes, it's true. We today, um, and especially I think younger generation um, Jews um, on the uh, east coast of uh, these United States do have sometimes a hard time imagining that, uh, that oppression, imagining that um, the shift from slavery to freedom or the, or the, the difficulties um, through the ages of being um, uh, of of being Jewish, of carrying that that burden sometimes of uh, of being Jewish, and uh, so Tisha B'Av and other other things that we talk to Chanichim uh, about, but especially Tisha B'Av, give that opportunity um, to discuss those things. Um, what I had been uh, thinking about is that today. I'm very lucky to be able to um, to teach the very youngest uh, overnight campers. A brand new crew of Ta'am Chanichim arrived at camp this week, um, and one thing that I love to to do with them is the is to look at Modani, but to look at the Omer Adam song Modani, which expands this idea of gratitude um, and uh, and and pushes this idea of instead of just saying, oh, I'm grateful for all the things that are good, um, he also sings in the song that he's grateful for his failures and he's grateful for the obstacles he faces and he's grateful for his weaknesses and says, because all of those things are for, are best for me, are for my good, are they, they strengthen me, they, they help me become who I am. It's not just the talent, it's not just all of the good things, and I think that that's an opportunity that um, that Tisha B'Av uh, offers uh, to us at camp in terms of talking to uh, to Chanichim, not just about appreciating the good, but learning from the obstacles and learning from the challenges. Your comment about failures and successes and appreciating them is well taken, and to me. It brings us back to the figure of Moshe, who is the dominant figure in Sefer Devarim. He is the one speaker. Moshe is perhaps obsessed with his failure. His one great wish is to make it into the land of Israel. And he keeps coming back to God and saying, let me in, let me in. And it's striking, the language at the beginning of the Parsha is God, he asks God, maybe you can let me see the land, meaning let me go in. And God says, don't speak of this again. You will see it, but you will not enter. And then he tells Moshe, you can take a look to the west, to the north, to the south, and the east. And that's all you'll get. Which means, if Moshe is on Mount Nebo, that his last look is not going to be of the promised land in this scene with God, but of the land that he came from. 
he is only able to get to the border and go no further. I guess in modern Hebrew we would say Yesh Gavul. And that's very true for Moshe. How do we think of Moshe as dealing with his failures? Here he seems to blame the people. There doesn't seem to be a lot of introspection. And yet there is something, he's filled with pathos. Who could not identify with someone who is in reach of his dream and knows that he's not going to get it? So it happens that uh, in uh, my Solim and Tzirim class, we have been talking about this. Uh, um, in, with connection to uh, a, a similar theme about transmission of leadership in musical theater, looking at uh, in Hamilton George Washington's decision to uh, to to step down and enlist Hamilton in writing his uh, as to assist him in writing his farewell address. And we looked at Moshe and we said, it was, "Is Moshe stepping down easily in the same way that uh, that Washington did?" And we looked at a midrash called Midrash Petirat Moshe. That imagines Moses making a deal with God at this around this point, and that uh, Moses says, "Wait, do I really have to uh, die now? If you just want me to stop being a leader, that's fine. Joshua can be the next leader." And Moses says, "Are you really going to be able to give Joshua the level of honor and respect?" Uh, that he used to give to you. And Moshe says, yeah, I will refer to him from henceforth. I'll refer to him as Moriva Rabbi Yoshua, my master and my teacher, Joshua. And so they try this for a little while. And then God summons Joshua into the tent of meeting. And then Joshua goes in the tent of meeting without Moses. And Joshua comes out and Moses says, oh, Joshua, what did God just tell you? And Joshua says, Moses, my master, did God, did you when God used to talk to you in the tent of meeting, did you debrief me about everything that God said to you? And at this point, Moses says, okay, take me now. I am just, I uh, do not want to ever again feel the pangs of jealousy that I'm currently feeling. Uh, and so that is a midrash that says that Moses was being self-reflective. Though I agree here in the beginning of our parsha, he's not so self-reflective. He says, God got angry at me. And you know what, it, people of Israel? It was your fault. Mm-hmm. This whole thing is your fault. I think it's very powerful that God um, instructs Moshe to look east for the last and kind of underscores um, a lot of what we've been talking about today and this idea of the importance of looking back, looking back to where you came from, looking back to where the people before you came from um, because it, it, it seems, I would guess it's clear to God that Moshe has not reached that point of being able to do that on his own. And that's why God's uh, instruction is for the last, the, 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 the last place to look is, is, is east, is the place that you, um, you know, that, you, that, that they came from um, in their circuitous uh, route into, into the land. Um, and, uh, and is instructive to us to, to always be really mindful of um, where we were and not so, uh, and not just put all of our focus on, on where we're going. So what I would add is that the end for each of us is when we can only look back. Our future is our ability to look forward. And I think your, your point is well taken. We need to take where we've been in order to march forward in an appropriate direction. We have a rich history here at camp as Jews from our respective personal histories, and we're not done with our job either here at camp or in our lives. 
So let's hope that together we will march forward with Yehoshua into the Promised Land. For Hope Lavov and Rob Scheinberg, I am Barry Chesler. Whether you are listening on Call Ramad 102.3 FM <laughs> or on the World Wide Web at www.callramad.org, we wish you all Shabbat Shalom.